Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. I'd like to begin tonight, actually, by asking everyone to do something kind of funny. I want everyone to raise their hands, both sets of hands, no non-participants, both sets of hands. Michael Coyle, you're not raising your hands. I know you have a baby. It's okay. Put her down on the floor under the pew. Raise both, both sets of hands. Um, we're actually beginning this part, part four of our teaching on money and possessions by receiving pledges to build a new parsonage for the teaching pastors. So this is good. All right, I want to thank you for your commitment. Generous, encouraging. No, just kidding. I actually do want you to actually take, bring them down in front of your face. And I want you to take a look at each one of your hands. First the right one. Now the left one. Okay, hands are actually one of the most telling parts of our physical bodies, particularly the posture they assume day to day. If you're, keep your hands in front of you. If you're like the majority of folks here who at once upon a time were babies, you know that when you came out of your mama's wombs, your hands were most likely in what position? Yes, closed-fisted. Close your fists, right? Let's go back to, to infanthood, Right? Most infants come out with their faces kind of squunched up and their hands closed, clenched even tighter into tiny little fists. I recall marveling when my little daughter Chase was born and uh, those long little fingers of hers just kind of clenched so tight. And I love to look at a baby's hands. You ever look at them? The little fingers, the tiny nail beds. And I remember as she slept, Colleen and I would just kind of, we'd do this very gently, kind of uncurl those little fingers of hers one at a time, just pry them loose to get a look at them. And what was funny is that once we'd get her hands open and place our finger or something else in the palm of her hand, what would happen? Close them back up again, right? It's like a reflex, wrapping them around our finger, holding tight, not letting go. It's a reflex reaction of newborns. It's what happens when we come into this world. We naturally clutch onto whatever is placed in our hands. Hold on tight. Don't let go. Now, this impulse seems to get stronger when an infant becomes a toddler, <laughs> Our daughter is now three and a half years old, and she's learned one of the most vile four-letter words in the English language, M-I-N-E, all together now, mine. <laughs> the Dora doll she carries around the house is mine. <laughs> if a snack falls out of her mama's purse, she yells, mine, and she clutches it to her chest. And if she sees her baby brother enjoying one of her books, she cries, mine, and yanks it from his hand, and World War III begins. Her motto is, what's mine is mine, and what's yours is Mine. <laughs> it seems like we're natural-born clutchers from early on. I'd like to say that impulse changes when we grow up, but it doesn't really, does it? I want you to think about it. Look at those hands. When you were in middle school, you hung on tight to other stuff, right? To handlebars, batons, other things. Perhaps that's when you started collecting stuff. Baseball cards, stamps, coins, dolls. You learn to pick things up and keep them safe. Start counting them for yourself. In high school, some of us hung on to another hand, a hand of a boyfriend or girlfriend, right? You held hands in the 7-Eleven parking lot, declaring to everybody, he's mine, or she is mine, right? Okay? Just... And in college, you probably hung on to a lot of different things, maybe some stuff we don't even want to talk about here. <laughs> but when you left, you were clutching a diploma with two hands. And when you stuck, yay, God, college graduates, we have a couple college graduates in the audience, that's great. When you started a career, you grabbed what? The lowest rung on the ladder and you hung on. And then you reached for the second one, you hung on the next one. And since then, many of us have been climbing ladders, clutching rungs. Others of us are like barely holding on when it comes to jobs. But for everyone, someday, retirement will come. I know this is a younger crowd, but you, it will come that day. And you will hang on to what? I don't know, retirement, golf clubs, you know, I don't know, what, what do you kind of hang on to, gardening tools, you know, pension funds, social security, and when we get near the end of our lives, our hands will start grasping onto canes and walkers. <laughs> In the final moment of life, you know what happens to some people, they actually clutch the edge of a hospital bed, and they try to hang on tightly as if to life itself, and then they die, finally unnaturally, relaxing their grip. Bill Hybels, to whom I'm indebted for this observation, notes, by our very nature, you and I are natural-born clutchers. 
we scrape and claw and work and fret. And if we get ahead just a little bit, we hold on tight. It doesn't matter who or what tries to convince us to relax our grip. We've got a reflexive response when it comes to giving up something that's dear to us. No way. Not for him, not for her, not even for God. <laughs> Look at your hands. For most of us, clutching is like breathing. It just comes naturally. Now, what a difference there is between our hands and the hands of God. I want you to think about God's hands for a moment. The Bible tells us that at the the birth of creation, God actually did just the opposite of what we instinctively do. In creation, God lavishly formed and he fashioned that which was good, which was very good. The heavens, the earth, the animals, you and me. And then he did something astonishing. He what? Opened his hands. He gave his creation to those he created. You take it. It's a gift to be cared for and enjoyed. The open hands of God. Throughout the Old Testament, the history of God's people, God opens up his hands time and again and generously provides his people with food, with drink, protection, blessing, and love. The psalmist declared in Psalm 145, 16, you open your hand, O God, and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The prophet Jeremiah actually proclaimed his compassion, the Lord's compassion, never fails. They knew every morning, great is his faithfulness. God's kindness and generosity are not fading. His resources are not drying up. And so bound up in the very heart of God is this desire to actually open his hands and shower his children, that's us, with goodness. When Jesus, God's son, came and saw the needs of people, what did he do? He opened his hands. He literally taught. He healed He touched, he loved, he served, washed feet. And when he came to the end of his life, he did not hold on tightly. (laughs) In fact, as he was about to be nailed to a cross as a sin payment for all of us, he did not actually clench his fist at those nailing him to the cross and resist giving up his very life. No, no, no. He instead did the opposite of what comes instinctively. He what? Opened his hands allowing them to be pierced instead. The open hands of God are a powerful symbol of an essential part of his very character, God's generosity. Generosity is that part of God that sincerely enjoys just giving to others in an outstanding, lavish manner, leaving recipients gasping and saying, what a God, what an outlandishly generous God. Who am I that... He would gift me this way. This is the openness that so distinguishes his hands from ours. Look at your hands again. Just take a peek. Do you like what you see right now? Do you wish your hands looked a little bit more like the hands of Christ? A little bit more open, holding a bit more loosely to the money and the stuff that's been entrusted to you? A little bit more open to the needs of others? Well, don't start wringing and wrenching them. Just leave your hands alone for the minute. Because if God needs to change your hands, he doesn't usually start there. If he needs to change your hands, he will likely start with your heart. The Bible describes how a pair of hands were actually transformed by Jesus one day. You might remember they were attached to a man named Zacchaeus. We referenced that little guy a couple weeks ago in Luke 19, right? We don't know that much about him, but we do know he was a clutcher. (laughs) In fact, this chief tax collector, he didn't just have an iron grip on his own stuff. He also wrenched whatever he could from the hands of others. Zacchaeus was a natural-born clutcher too. That is, until he had dinner with Jesus. Luke doesn't actually give the details of what went on in that conversation, but Zacchaeus came out on the other side with just transformed paws. (laughs) One imagines what Jesus might have said over dinner. Hey, Zacchaeus, what did he say to him? What your heart yearns for will never be satisfied by that which you are hanging on to so tightly. Your heart was meant to be in deep communion with God and in loving community with other people in the family of God. And you've walked away from that kind of communion and you're settling for something far less. You're settling for a small life, desperately trying to meet the needs of your heart by clutching onto stuff. Then you envision Jesus leaning over the table to Zacchaeus and whispering, you know what I'm going to do for you? In the not-too-distant future, I'm going to actually open up my hands 
And they're going to receive steel spikes so that guys like you with hands like yours can be forever changed. I'm going to be so generous to you, Zacchaeus. I'm going to take your sin and your greed and your lack of love, and I am going to pay for it all on the cross. And I'm going to present salvation to you as a gift. And I won't stop there. I'm going to adopt you into my family. I'm going to answer your prayers, little man. I'm going to give you strength through the storms of life, and I'm going to give you heaven on top of it all. Whatever Jesus said over that meal, you know at some point in their dinner together, the enormity of Jesus' gift just did something to Zacchaeus. Something changed on the inside because he emerged from that fateful meeting with newfound purpose, joy, and freedom, announcing in a trembling voice, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And what did Jesus say? Today, I tell you the truth, what's come to this man's house? Salvation. Something about that one-on-one encounter with Jesus Christ loosened his grasp. And when your heart gets ambushed by love, your hands have a way of opening up. Ambushed by love. That that phrase actually reminds me of something that happened when I was in college. It's where I met my wife, Colleen. We started dating as freshmen. And it almost didn't last because of a nasty prank Colleen played on me during our second Valentine's Day together. Uh, Like most colleges, Wheaton had a SIPO. You know what SIPO is? Campus post office, right? Okay. Good, thank you. The two college grads are like, I'm with you. I'm tracking, Tim. (laughs) It's the main gathering place for, like, all students. And every day, students would come to get their mail, okay? And they'd open our little mail slots with our key. We'd pull out, like, a care package from home or, you know, class notes from a friend or a parking fine from, like, you know, public safety. And it was this, this busy little place, okay, especially after chapel. See, after chapel let out at 1045, most folks had, like, 15 minutes before their next class. And often they'd use that time to kind of run to SIPO, check the mail, grab some coffee, meet friends. Busy little place. And on that fateful Valentine's Day, it was swarming with like one-third of the student population. And there I was, a naive sophomore, kind of, you know, elbowing my way in through the crowd to get the box 1718. That was my little mail slot, okay, in college. And it was Valentine's Day, but that hadn't really registered with me. Maybe I had like the faint hope that my mom was going to send like a box of cookies or something. But either way, I muscled into my mail slot and I stuck in my key... And that's when it happened. As I opened the little door to my slot. Now understand, these slots were facing downward. They were in an angle. So that your mail would slide to the front. And I'm talking with my hockey buddy, Tucker, about a game or something. And I casually opened up my mail slot with my key. And all of a sudden... And I tried to stop it. But the little cinnamon hearts were too much. And actually, all 7,000 of those little hearts were too much to stop that that door. Out they came, about 7,000 tiny little red-hot cinnamon hearts. You know those you had on Valentine's Day? They pour out of my mailbox, flooding all over the tile floor of SIPO during rush hour, the busiest moment of the morning. And it was a total disaster. Hearts, you know, scattering everywhere. People, like, start slipping and everything. And they're, you know, clearing away from my little corner. They're like, what's going on over there? And I'm desperately trying to close the door. But it's too late. These things are pouring out, ricocheting everywhere. And my friend Tucker, he's like, dude. He's like, so they're backing up. And he walked out of SIPO, left me there all alone. And uh, by now, folks were, like, gathering around to, like, watch this spectacle. The floor is covered with the contents of my Valentine's Day present from my thoughtful girlfriend. And the male lady behind the counter comes around. She hands me a broom. <laughs> and I was I stooped to the floor, and I began, you know, cleaning them up. And, like, my, my face was, like, kind of redder than, like, even, you know, the hearts themselves. Uh, I'm cleaning them up. I just remember just kind of mumbling, you know, going, oh, sorry about this, you know, feeling the eyes of everyone on me. And as I, as I took trip after trip, you know, to the garbage, I recall thinking something else. I was like, how great is this girl? <laughs> See, Colleen had snuck in there that morning. She had a mole in SIPO. And she filled my box with the sweetest expression, literally, of her love. And while it embarrassed me somewhat, it also made me feel like I was the most appreciated and cherished boyfriend on campus. I was ambushed by love. (laughs) It actually didn't stop there. (laughs) 
As I went to class and took out my notebooks, I found another surprise. Post-it notes all over the place. I took out my literature books, opened it up, and there's a note. Love you, stud. <laughs> I opened my ancient civ text, and there's another. Happy V-Day, my hockey hottie. <laughs> I thought that was nice. She had hid them all over, raided my backpack, plastered a pads worth of these yellow post-it notes expressing her affection for me. And with each class, I opened my text and smiled, each note just reminding me of how special I was to her throughout the day. I know, oh, okay, all right. I can't quite describe the effect that her lavish act of affection had on me. I actually remember being embarrassed. At the cafeteria, a couple people sneered. They were like, oh, there's the mailbox guy as I walked by. But I also remember feeling love beyond measure. You know, I did. It's funny. I mean, all right, I'm sappy. I saved each of those Post-it notes. I kept them in my dorm room. And I posted them around my desk and soaked them all in. You and I are in a relationship with a God who does this kind of thing all the time. Ambushing us with affection. Leaving Post-it notes of his love as reminders each day all around to us. In the morning, he paints the sky with a sunset. He says, I I love you. He answers and hears our prayers and says, see, I I love you. He strengthens you when you're weak, and he says, I am here for you. I love you. He lavishly supplies daily provisions and says, remember, I love you. And when you are in desperate need of grace, he opens his forgiving arms and says, come here. Now, I haven't run out. I love you. God's generous expressions of love confront you everywhere you turn. The question is, do you see them? Do you take the time to notice? To actually be embarrassed by the generosity of his affection towards you. Better yet, do you return the favor? (laughs) Respond with love to the way you've been loved on. Look at your hands one last time. What's the truth about them? One thing is certain. If you live deeply enough with a sense of God's generosity, your hands will start looking more like his. They really will. You'll find them opening up more frequently. They'll actually start opening up to a wider range of needs. They'll start looking for ways to serve others and express God's kindness to them in embarrassingly generous ways. And this is actually what happened to a bunch of early Christians in Asia Minor who had no earthly business opening up their hands because they were actually quite poor. (laughs) But something about their newfound faith in the Son of God actually deeply touched their heart, and not surprisingly, their hands followed. I want to invite you to take a Bible and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's on page 1890. As we're moving further into the Bible's teaching on money and possessions, we find here an interesting picture of what happens when followers of Christ allow the love of their master to actually touch their hearts and truly open their hands to give. Now, Corinthians is a letter. This is a letter, okay? Written by the Apostle Paul to the believers at a Christian church in Corinth. And in chapter 8, you'll notice the heading in, your, in my version. It says, Generosity Encouraged. He tells the Corinthians about a special collection he was overseeing on behalf of impoverished believers in Jerusalem. He's taking a special offering. And he starts by describing to them how the churches in Macedonia, that's in, that's in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, had given extravagantly to help poor Christians in Jerusalem, which was actually kind of strange because, you see, The Macedonian Christians were dirt poor. They had every reason to hold on to what they had, scrape and fight for what they needed, but they didn't. Instead, they opened their hand and gave generously to others. I want you to read with me. 2 Corinthians 8, let's look at verses 1 through 9. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial... Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you. 
But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Stop there. As I said, Paul's telling the Corinthians about the material needs of these these very poor Christians in Jerusalem. They were very poor, basic needs that were unmet. And Paul describes that something incredible happened when the Macedonian believers heard about it. (laughs) A dam burst forth, (laughs) causing them to give extravagantly to their needy brothers and sisters. And this is what Paul's writing to the Corinthians to tell them about. He says, hey, I want you guys to know what Jesus is doing through the Macedonian churches. Verse 2, out of the most severe trial... Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, just stop a minute and look at the competing phrases contained in this one sentence. If you have a pen, you can underline them. Severe trial, overflowing joy, extreme poverty, rich generosity. What? How do these all fit together in one verse? I mean, they seem completely contradictory. I mean, if your situation is extremely poor you ain't going to be overflowing with joy, right? Well, this is the first thing we learn about open-handed giving. Open-handed giving is stimulated by supernatural joy. It ain't natural. (laughs) I'm going to share with you several qualities of open-handed giving highlighted in this this passage, but the first thing we learn is this. Giving sacrificially actually ain't natural. (laughs) You're not wired to do it. Sorry. (laughs) you're looking for an excuse not to give, that's it. I, I just, I don't feel like I'm wired that way. You're right, you're not. <laughs> Our natural default, as we've said, is to what? Clutch and grasp. And you'd think that if you encountered a group of people who were poor and deprived themselves, as the Macedonians were, the last thing they'd be spending time on is figuring out how I could help others in need. But that's actually what happened in Macedonia, Paul tells us. These people were in the midst of severe trial, and yet their lives were overflowing with joy. Nothing to do with their situation. Something had gripped them. Better yet, someone had taken hold of their hearts. And it's called the Holy Spirit of the living God. And in the midst of their extreme poverty, it just welled up in rich generosity. That's what the joy of the Lord does. It bubbles. And when it's really percolating in a believer's heart, it actually kind of overflows and smears other things. It runs beyond its normal bounds, begins stimulating supernatural displays of love that you naturally wouldn't think of or follow through on. That's what happened with their giving. Verse 3, for I testify, they gave as much as they were able, and what? Even beyond their ability. In other words, these Christians were so filled with the joy of the Spirit that when they heard of other Christians who were struggling, they gave and gave and gave some more. (laughs) Far beyond their ability and without any normal, sane, rational, practical thought that a person might have, they gave sacrificially. Talk about open-handed. This was not an affluent American church with a massive missions budget. (laughs) These weren't Western Christians with deep wallets. The Macedonians were undergoing severe trials, experiencing extreme poverty. The text doesn't explain why, but the intense persecution of Christians in their region undoubtedly caused economic depression. I mean, these folks were truly poor. Interesting. Did you know that there was virtually no middle class in the entire first century Roman Empire in Macedonia? It was wildly lopsided. Extreme poverty or tremendous affluence. No middle class. So the rest, most of us have no point of relation to this. The vast majority of the population lived at or below the subsistence level. So in a very real way, the Macedonian Christians had like two nickels to rub together. But you know what they did with those two nickels? They gave one away. It it cost them something to reach out and help their fellow brothers in Jerusalem. But in a way, it was like they couldn't help themselves. According to Paul's witness, I testify this really happened. He uses legal language. The Macedonians were so filled by the supernatural joy of God that they responded with this totally inexplicable sacrifice in order to help their impoverished brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Now, you know, here at Liquid, we've been taking this affluenza offering, right? Right? We've kind of been taking this affluenza offering. Now I'm going to set things on fire. And, um, and the idea of the affluenza offering was kind of a, to be a practical outlet for those of us who just kind of want to begin spending our treasure that we're entrusted with here on earth in ways that are meaningful to God. We've noticed that, you know, Starbucks, you know, motorcycles, the, our car is not that meaningful to God. <laughs> 
growing our bigger barns, the addition to our house. But actually, God says there are a lot of things that are very meaningful to me, including looking after orphans and widows in their distress. That's religion, true religion, that God accepts as faultless. And so this idea of the affluenza offering was we're going to say, let's start focusing on the widows and orphans among us, those in need. For instance, single parents and their kids. And so we kind of open up this chest. We're not passing the bag. We just put it up here at front. And in our first couple of weeks of collection, we've actually collected almost $2,000. That's what you folks have gave. That's wonderful. <laughs> applause. I know. Some of you are giving like play applause. Now you're like, okay, I didn't do that yet. Okay. So, no, it's not about guilt. Not like now you come give. No. But after our last service together, a middle-aged woman came up to me and she was all aglow. And she was like, oh, Pastor Tim, this is so exciting. I can't believe we're doing this. This is so great. And I said in my mind, I was like, oh, this is good. You know, she has actually reason to be excited. For she's someone who actually was literally widowed. I was like, perhaps this voluntary offering will benefit her. Wrong. She continued gushing. She's like, I'm just excited. Because I recently received this, like, financial settlement that I was wondering what to do with it. I feel like the timing of this thing. I feel like God is telling me this is my chance to look outward and bless others. Her face was just, like, beaming. Full of joy, maybe? Well, mine probably looked a little stunned. (laughs) See, when the joy of the Holy Spirit grips you, the result truly is joy. The joy is the stimulus behind open-handed giving. We start seeing our material blessings as a way to bless others, not increase our affluence. No matter how much we have, rich or poor, we actually start looking for ways to give. The world takes on a different hue. And you know what? God rejoices too. Because our grip on our money and our stuff actually starts loosening. And we start becoming about something bigger than ourselves. Using what we're given to attend to the needs of others who couldn't help themselves. And it's not an onerous burden, but a joyful privilege. At least that's how the Macedonian believers saw it, as a privilege. That's the second quality in verse 4 here of open-handed giving that Paul highlights. Again, this doesn't make natural sense. We naturally assume that giving is a luxury of the rich. Like, oh, okay, it's about stewardship. I guess it's for rich people. The Bible suggests it's actually a privilege of the poor. The Macedonians refused to let their own hard circumstances keep them from joy. Verse 4 reads, Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. Now, this is incredible. Get this. These poor Christians saw a need, and they had to presumably plead... Because Paul and others were telling them that, you know what, you guys are so poor yourselves, you're like exempt from giving. They're like, no, please, let us give. Like, all right, where is this church? (laughs) This church does not exist. Giving. And their spirit-skewed minds was not a burden, but a privilege. Notice their motivation for giving was not like manipulation or coercion. Paul was like, now some of you could give a little bit more. Entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us. This ain't about guilt. (laughs) This is about discovering the joy of giving. To give out of what we have, whether rich or poor, is a privilege given by God. Do you see it that way? I challenged me. (laughs) These early Christians were dirt poor but came up with every reason they could to give. They begged for the privilege of spending what little resources they had on needy people. Now think about that contrast to so many modern-day Christ followers who have so much more than we could possibly actually ever need but manage to come up with endless justifications for not giving. I was talking to a friend recently who went down to Mexico on a missions trip, and when he was visiting in one of the poorest sections of that region, his group encountered some like, you know, rural townsfolk who like, invited them in for a meal. It's kind of customary. And you know what they did? They like killed the fattened calf for them. Well, actually, not really. They couldn't afford a cow. <laughs> They actually killed a couple of roosters and chickens, something typically reserved for, like, special occasions. And they, like, set out a table before their American guests, treated them like privileged, you know, family. And my friend felt so humbled. He's like, because here I was, Tim. I'm traveling in this group of, like, affluent Westerners. And the poor folks we're visiting roll out the red carpet for us and serve us their best food. And they did it with the biggest smiles on their faces. I don't know if they were faking it. But they seemed really happy to do it. I was like, really? He goes, he goes, it was like one of the most humbling experiences of my life. To be served by someone who actually has less than you? Giving is not a luxury of the rich. It's a privilege of the poor, Paul tells us in his letter. It has little to do with how much you have to offer others, but everything to do with the spirit behind it. 
Example is in our affluenza offering, I was like kind of going through the pledges folks wrote on, uh, on index cards here. That was kind of fun to do. And um, I came across one from a, uh, from a nanny, actually, who uh, doesn't have, have a lot of money, but she wanted to help the single moms in our congregation. So she wrote, I'd like to donate my time for any single moms in need of evening child care. <laughs> it's like, I don't have a lot of money, <laughs> but I want to give something. I don't have material riches to offer. But I'm like, you know what? This sacrifice is more costly in many ways. Because caring for young kids is actually what she does all day for a living. (laughs) And now in her free time, she's like, I'm also willing to do that too. Why? My guess, it comes out of joy, compassion for others. She counts it a privilege to serve God by serving moms this way. It's not about amount. Open-handed giving is a privilege, but it's more than that. According to verse 5, it's also not just a privilege, but an act of worship. And now this is kind of funny, because the Macedonians' giving wasn't motivated like, they're like, oh, you know what, there are these other people who are really poor. By the way, I just put my hand in here, I know it's like someone put in a check, sorry. I put a check in there. Um, it's not like we feel bore, bad for like the poor and needy people, uh-uh. This was because their love for God was overflowing and invaded that aspect of their life too. Look at what Paul says in verse 5. And these guys did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Look at the two priorities Paul highlights here. And notice what motivates their financial sacrifice. First, they gave themselves to who? To the Lord and then to who? To us. In open-handed giving, in the final analysis, is an act of worship. We give ourselves first to the Lord that benefits others and then to others. We've already established that the immutable truth is that God actually owns everything. We're just his money managers. The world and everything in it is his. And we are stewards of his stuff. He entrusts it to us. And when we return it to him for his use, especially when we sacrifice to share with those in extreme need, it's an actually act of worship. Now, be honest. I mean, some of you are thinking that's a stretch, because you think primarily think of worship as like, well, that's music, right? That's what we do with the band up here. <laughs> I mean, worship, if you want to worship, you sing, right? No. That's one expression of worship. If you really want to worship, to give yourself first to the Lord, you give. The two actually go hand in hand. They're not as far as apart as it seems. Think about what many of us do when we worship or express our hearts through music to God. What do we instinctively do with our arms as we sing? <laughs> We instinctively raise and often open our hands to him. It's a symbolic gesture of openness, of offering all of ourselves to him for his use. We open our hands, lift our arms, we give him praise, invite him, take first place in my heart, Lord. Same thing with open-handed giving. It's first and foremost an act of worship. In many ways, giving is more powerful, in fact, than, than musical worship because it doesn't just exalt God. It tangibly benefits others. That's what Paul highlights. He says, gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. When we give, it's never supposed to be because we feel bad. There's not a hint of condescension here towards needy people in God's family. Never. It's about exaltation of their God, their common father. And we're simply mimicking our father who gives lavishly and generously when we're in need. Look, a needy brother. Now I can mimic dad and give according to his will. When we give to others sacrificially, it's a supreme act of worship in God's eyes. And curiously enough, it's also an act of Grace. That's the fourth one if you're taking notes. G-R-A-C-E. It is listed. Take a look at your text. How many times does Paul use the word here? Four. Four times. Grace at the core of things. Now, here's a deal. The Greek word for, for used for grace, God's grace at least, is charis. C-H-A-R-I-S. And it's the same Greek word that's used actually for Christian giving. That's where we get the word C-H-A-R-I-T-Y from. Charity, right? There's a direct connection between God's grace, that that means his undeserved gifts and kindness towards us, and our giving. In verse 1, Paul says his reason for writing this whole letter is that what? We want you to know about what? The grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. And exactly what is this gift that God gave them? How was God's grace like demonstrated? By their giving to help the hungry in Jerusalem. That's literally the act of grace Paul's referring to. So get this. In other words, when we give to our church, when we give to our brothers and sisters, when we sacrifice to what we have to help the needy, we are actually mirroring 
the kindness that God has shown us in our deepest moments of need. Grace is literally the giving an undeserved gift. More on that in a minute. And Paul says giving itself is a gift, a grace. In many ways, the ability to give is a spiritual gift. Now, this is where it's going to bother some of you. <laughs> but I've been thinking about this, been looking it up, kind of doing the cross-references on us. The Bible teaches us that every believer, every child of God who believes in Jesus Christ is given all sorts of gifts and special abilities that God bestows on us for the blessing of other people in his body. For instance, okay, I have the gift of teaching. That's not bragging. It's just what God's hired, wired me to do. It comes naturally. I love it. Hopefully it helps a few other people, three or four. That's great. <laughs> Same thing with giving, Paul suggests here. It is a gift that's bestowed on specific believers for the blessing of others in God's body. Show of hands, how many of you suspect you might actually have the gift of giving? If you're listening on the internet, note that I saw five hands, <laughs> right? I have a feeling that many of us have prayed to God to develop all sorts of gifts in us. <laughs> Whether it's increase my faith, Lord. Give me a miraculous gift or an ability like leadership. How many of us, show of hands, have actually asked God, please increase my ability to give sacrificially? Duly noted, no hands. <laughs> but this is exactly what Paul exhorts the Corinthians to do in verse 7. Look at this. Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace, this gift of giving. Paul said, hey, you guys, he looked over this church, he said, you guys are doing so well in so many things. In faith, and speech, that is, you have some good preaching, some good words of insight and knowledge, bravo, now this. I want you to be leaders in financial sacrifice. Eagerly desire that gift. Cultivate the ability to round yourself out as Christ followers with your giving. That's the fifth quality that Paul highlights in his letter to the Corinthians. Open-handed sacrificial giving is a target for any Christ follower. It should actually be something we aspire to and actively look for ways to exercise and grow in. I mean, how's that for a risky prayer, right? Lord, please increase my appetite for sacrifice. <laughs> Not please enlarge my garage, but enlarge my heart, my desire to give. I don't actually need more to give. I am requesting an increase in my own impulse to give. You increase that quality in my life, Lord. That's a dangerous prayer, <laughs> but it's a godly one. Last week, someone uh, stuck this little note in the affluenza offering. It's a handwritten uh, prayer. She wrote, thank you, God, for all your many blessings. You've always seen that all my needs were met. I've never wanted for anything. In the past, I've been a terrible steward of your riches, consuming so frantically and putting myself into so much debt that I've become ineffective in things that I might be able to do for others. Well, now I'm trying to be more responsible and use the blessings and riches you've entrusted to me in a way that's pleasing to you, to further your kingdom. Biggest one is clothes. <laughs> I have so many, I have to use all the closets in my three-bedroom apartment to store them all. No way I need to go shopping. Why do I? Because of boredom or out of habit? At the barest minimum, I can do this. God, please show me what else needs to change. It is all yours. May my whole life be glorifying to you. Think that's a prayer God hears? Someone says, I actually want to downgrade and scale back because I want to be more available to your business, God. That is a prayer that God hears. You can sense it's sincere, and it's from a gal who wants to grow. She's opening up herself. She says, I want to grow in the grace of giving. And you tell from the tone of her words, this is not out of obligation, but out of love. I want to be more available to my Father. And that's the most central aspect of Paul's instruction to the Corinthians. In verse 8, he says, Make no mistake. Giving in church, giving to others, giving to advance the kingdom is not a duty. It is not a duty-bound obligation. It is a voluntary response to love. This is not about guilt, shame, or grim duty. <laughs> That's what so many of us typically associate with the subject of money and spirituality. I understand why that is. Most of us grew up with images of hypocritical televangelists kind of shaking down the poor, elderly, and naive to line their own pockets. This ain't that. No ulterior motives. No guilt trips allowed in the house of God, says Paul in verse 8. Five words. I am not commanding you. <laughs> Sacrificial giving is not a command. God actually doesn't want you to give out of force or obligation. Rather, 
It's something we're compelled to do when we're touched by the full impact of his grace in our life. And this is the core of the issue, folks. Paul hits on the head here in verse 9. Look at this. You want to know why we give? What's supposed to distinguish, like, Christian giving from just, like, you know, charity and philanthropy? The motivation behind it. Look at what he says. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. At the heart of this issue of breaking free from a life of self-absorbed consumption into the joy of open-handed giving is our master, our model, the giver of all givers, Christ Jesus our Lord. And in urging them to greater levels of giving, Paul appeals. He says, you guys know him firsthand. You know the grace of Christ. You experience his generosity on the cross. That though he was rich, for your sakes, he what? Downgraded, became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich, heirs of God himself. Last week, Erica used that terrific metaphor of leaving the palace to kind of challenge us to forfeit some of our earthly comforts to bless others in need. But when we talk about leaving the palace, a king sacrificing his throne or comfortable kingdom in order to identify with needy people, there's no greater example of that than Jesus himself. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. It's interesting, in literal terms, there actually is no evidence that Jesus was actually any poorer than most first century Palestinians. This isn't about material wealth. (laughs) Rather, Jesus became poor through that event known as the Incarnation literally deciding to voluntarily leave his position in heaven at God's right hand, give up his rights as God's son, and come to live with us in this hot and dirty world. Talk about becoming poor. You think of that sacrifice. The omnipotent God who creates the universe, all-powerful, all-knowledgeable, voluntarily becomes a man. The human, holy human person, Jesus of Nazareth. I'm going to subject myself to place, to time, to sickness, to biological humiliations, and all other limitations like the rest of those creatures. And Jesus set aside his glory as God's son to serve humanity, to open his hands and identify and suffer with us and die a criminal's death for our sin. For your sakes, he who was rich became poor. So that you who are poor can now be rich. Think of all Christ sacrificed, lost and gave up for the privilege of giving to us this way. Yet what happened as a result of his open-handed sacrifice for us? We became rich. The ultimate gift that can be bestowed, salvation, eternal life through his life and death on our behalf. I was thinking about this on my truck on the way over here. And I was just like, what? What would have happened if God had remained closed-fisted in our moment of greatest need? This is the heart of any giving, my friends, the cross of Jesus Christ. All principles of money and giving and stewardship have to flow from the example of our master on the cross. And this is what was behind the Macedonians' astonishing display of generosity. They were personally touched by the love of God in Christ Jesus and sought to follow his example. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. For your sakes, he became poor. This was at the heart of their remarkable generosity and the main reason they gave up their life of acquiring, consuming, hoarding, and spending instead opened their hands to others. That's how open-handed giving works, folks. Having received, we're now motivated to pass it on. God's grace is like lightning. And giving is simply the thunder that follows it. When I was ambushed by Colleen's expression of love, it did something to me. (laughs) It actually stimulated love in return. I can't remember what my classes were like the rest of the day because I was already plotting ways to get her back. (laughs) And I did the following weekend. My friend Tucker and I kind of raided her apartment in the wee hours, but instead of soaking them with water balloons and shaving cream, we woke them up and made a Belgian waffle breakfast for her and her friends. Not revenge exactly, but return of the favor. See, open-hearted love begets love. Outrageous displays of generosity cause something in the recipient's heart to tenderize and open up to the ways of being generous in return. That's how open-handed giving works. 
having received, we're now invited to, to pass it on. And I, I think of one other time this happened in my life, by the way, is when I first became a pastor. I actually had quit my job teaching English. I had to forfeit my salary, actually, for a month in order to kind of transition into ministry. There was this overlap. And, you know, at the time, I was like, wow, you know, it's all right. It's a little bit of a sacrifice. Colleen and I were like, we'll make it. But a family in this church who had kids of their own actually took us out for lunch one time. And I thought, I was like, oh, that's nice. They're giving us a free lunch. Thank you for that. I could use that. Um, and I said, look, we've just been praying about it and stuff. And we're just so delighted that you're, you're, you're going to come on as, you know, the pastor here in the family. And um, I don't know. We're just, God was telling us to do this. And they slid something across the table. And it was a check. It was a check for $5,000. They go, we know it's not going to be the easiest thing. You're probably not getting into the pastorate for money, right? You don't think this is about money, right? Because you're not going to make anything. Oh, yeah, I know, I know. I was a teacher, I know. Um, God's been telling us to do this, to bless you guys this way. Just, like, he's given us a little extra, and, and well, and then she, I could tell, like, it kind of wasn't a little extra because they got four kids. And it was like, but this is what we're doing. And um, the people who did it told us before. I mean, we had known them for a little bit. And, they were, you know, they'd always told us they loved us. But when they gave me that check, I knew. Their gift to me became tangible. And it was kind of reckless, this gift, because I knew it really cost them. But they were joyful to do it. And Colleen and I were deeply touched, just convinced. Gosh, who does such a thing? They aren't really even related to me. But you know what we were privileged to do years later, Colleen and I? <laughs> Funny thing. We find ourselves in a situation that we have the chance to give that same money along to another couple just starting out in ministry. And at the time, I was like, oh, man, this is going to hurt. Because Colleen was like, you know what we could do? I was like, don't say it. <laughs> but you know what? It was a joy. When we gave that money and a little bit more, <laughs> it was an expression of love, a response to having first been loved. And that's what's at the heart of giving, Paul tells us. We love because we first were loved. We give because we first were given to by Christ Jesus. That's the heart of it. And it's kind of funny that love becomes so central to a discussion about money. (laughs) You'd think that we'd be discussing numbers and spreadsheets, but that's not what God is most concerned with. Because in the end, folks, open-handed giving is all about attitude, not the amount. That's the last point that Paul makes that I want to close with here in verses 10 through 12. Look at this. He says, here's my advice about what's best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Verse 11. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. In other words, the point of giving is not so much the amount we give, but the why and the how we give. Paul says to Corinthians, you were the first to have the desire to give. In fact, it was what? An eager willingness. In God's eyes, giving is all about motivation. Remember in, later on, Paul writes, I can, you can give all you have to the poor, but if you have not love, it's what? Nothing. Make yourself poor, give it all away. Uh-uh. If you don't have love, zip. God doesn't actually want your gifts (laughs) given grudgingly. Instead, he wants us to give, as these churches did, out of devotion to Christ, out of love, genuine love for fellow believers, and the joy that comes with helping those in need, as well as the fact that it was simply the good and right thing to do. And when God gets a hold of people in this way, incredible things happen. This past January, here at Liquid, was actually the richest month in the history of giving. And it was prior, actually, to starting the series. (laughs) Not related. One of the reasons for that was that we received an end-of-the-year gift. And a lot of people give, like, you know, generously towards the end of the year because they're looking for a tax break and that kind of stuff. And that's great. We're okay with that. Everyone has mixed motives. Good for you. (laughs) That's what we do, too. That's fine. But this gift was a little bit different because it wasn't a guy catching up on his tithe. I don't know if it was a woman, actually. I I I don't have access to those records. I'm not interested in who gives what. But they called me and said, you really should know about this. Someone gave a $20,000 gift to us, to our ministry. And when I received word of that, I, I was just in awe. I, I actually, I was like, wow, cool. I mean, this is great. wow. 
So cool, someone's vibing with what we're doing. That's what I thought. But as I thought about that, I realized I was wrong. Because this isn't about vibing with somebody, something. I vibe with a lot of things. I like Starbucks, Apple computers, and music, YouTube, but I don't write checks to them. <laughs> I love what they do, but not like that. <laughs> and then I realized something. This extravagant gift to our ministry didn't have to do with how much this person was a fan of liquid. Uh-uh. The only explanation for someone cutting a $20,000 check is love. Not love for a ministry, but love for God. And undoubtedly, the grace of Christ had touched them in some way, and now his spirit was stirring something in his or her heart, and it simply like spilled over, smeared onto us. <laughs> it's called joy. And I have no doubt that they counted it a privilege to contribute what they could to what God's doing here at our church, and that's cool. I praise God for that. It's nice to be smeared by someone else's joy. But I don't want you to lose perspective because it was a big gift, 20K. Because the point is that Paul makes, it's not about the amount. It's all about the attitude behind it in God's eyes. That's why I want to hold this up right on the heels. A handwritten note, and you can see kind of in the bubble letters of a teenager. I'm a girl from Iowa who's 17. We got this in the mail. I just happened to come across Liquid Podcast. Really enjoy the sermons about Solomon. And it's evoked a feeling of love that I've been denying for a long time toward God. And she goes on about how she wishes she like kind of lived near us so she could attend and just wanted to contribute something. And here it is. And here's a small, this, this handwritten check in the, in the 17-year-olds. You know, you know when 17, they still have like, like big bubble handwriting? <laughs> and there's this check for, you know, it was, like, it was less than 20 bucks. And you get it? When God looks down on both of those gifts, 20K, 20 bucks, one from Wall Street, one from a high school kid in the Midwest, both are a pittance to him. Those are my children giving. Their hearts behind each of those, in my eyes, are what makes this a lasting investment in my kingdom. One does not dwarf the other. They are the same because God looks at the heart. Paul's letter is really a study in proportional giving. He actually says, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. It's not about being rich. The financial sacrifice of the poor Macedonians show that actually anyone can make a great contribution in God's eyes. This is an echo, okay, of what Jesus taught when he pointed to that poor widow who dropped two worthless coins in the temple treasury and said, Oh, rich lady, rich in spirit. She gave out of all she had, out of her poverty, and her Father in heaven rejoices. Open-handed giving is about joy, about love, about freedom. Later on in chapter 9, Paul writes, Each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a what? Cheerful giver. Again, there's the emphasis on joy, (laughs) on the overflow of God's spirit into your being, welling up so that the love of Christ has so ravished you, you can't help but want to express that same grace to others in tangible ways. Giving is not. Don't ever give in church if you like groan and like, all right, let me get my wallet. Don't give. It's not about guilt or compulsion. It's about cheerful giving, the joy of opening your hands to another. I love that in the affluenza offering on behalf of single moms and needy families here, there have been some checks for 500 bucks and other rolled up singles scrunched into a ball that I know they came out of someone's sock. I could smell it as we're kind of like unrolling them. I was like, that is beautiful. That's beautiful. I don't even carry a checkbook. Some people come with a checkbook. Some people with their stuff rolled up in a sock. And God stirs in the hearts of each person, whether well-to-do or just scraping by, to spread the love as the Spirit leads them. So what has God been stirring in your heart? There are a variety of things that people have actually dropped into this uh, pledge to do as they loosen their grip on material wealth and said, I want to reach out and, and get on God's agenda and help others. I wish you could read some of these cards. I love this. one of my favorite parts of my job. Um, this guy wrote, she said, I'm going to be intentional about bringing lunch to work and not buy lunch for a whole month during the week. At the end of the month, I'm going to give $75 into the affluenza offering. That's what she wrote. That's her pledge. This guy wrote, um, well, I guess it's not a guy. He wrote, <laughs> that would be weird. Uh, no new handbags or shoes. <laughs> you really stand. <laughs> Whatever, you're, everyone's welcome here. Um, no new clothes, handbags, or shoes for two months. And then she, she writes, three to $500. Dollars. 
Lifestyle choice. Going out to dinner for one month and no CDs, 150 bucks. I'm going to give up Starbucks coffee, like you mentioned, for a month. That's 50 bucks. And then this person got creative. This person, I assume, is a lawyer because they said, actually, I'm going to follow through and offer pro bono work to anybody who needs it. I love the idea when God's people get creative because it's not about even money necessarily. Giving is about something else. This one says, I believe that God wants me to begin selling off some or slash all of the earthly treasures I've accumulated, predominantly coins and autographed memorabilia. And after auctioning it off, give the money away to the poor. This is my idea. An auction to save an African village. Someone's got to talk with that guy. Don't take this too seriously, guys. Now, come on. I mean, there are, there are limits, aren't there, to kind of what God might stir you to do? All those pledges are example of people just responding to the love that God has shown them in Christ Jesus. Sacrificing things that are precious to them to help others in need. And they actually don't need our thanks because it's a privilege, <laughs> that Paul says. It results in great joy for them, too. It's a powerful first step in loosening the grip to be, free, to be free of that affluenza bug. And so I want to end, as Paul did, by urging you to persevere and follow through in this. Because this isn't about raising money. This isn't a fundraiser. It's about doing something new in your life, the discipline of giving, to free you from something else so you can be part of what God's doing. See, the Corinthians actually, this is kind of backstory, by the way, they started a collection for the poor a year earlier. And Paul was writing the second letter to urge them actually to follow through on their commitments. (laughs) He actually finishes, look in verses 10 and 11. He says, "Um, last year you were the first not only to give, but have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. The only thing better than desire in God's eyes is follow through. Action. Don't quench God's spirit. Respond to what he's telling you in your heart. So if God's motivated you to make a financial commitment to help, just fulfill it with joy. Persevere. It's part of growth. And notice Paul says, according to your means, it doesn't necessarily mean going into the poorhouse or giving away so much that you can't meet your own financial obligations. That's not God's desire that you're a burden to others. For some, the first step towards a freedom of open-handed giving may actually not be the giving of money. One person wrote on their card, I am getting out of debt in the next 12 months so I can be free someday to give to others. Good for you. Good for you. We're going to take a practical look at debt in the next two weeks. But I want you to start, stop, actually end where we started. Look at your hands right now. Your hands. I want you to envision the hands of God. Do they look similar in their position and posture? Giving is about grace. It's about joy. I will never tell you where to give. Because part of the joy of giving is being in conversation with your father about where he wants you to invest his money. Obviously, we have needs as a church. And if our ministry has touched your life, hey, we'll rejoice to receive your gifts. Knock our socks off. That's great. It's what allows us to do what we do each week. But it's God who provides for us in the end. We simply provide the opportunities. Hence the affluenza offering. Maybe God's prompting you to meet the needs of people right here in our church family. So as usual, we'll leave the treasure chest up here at the end of services if you're so motivated. Or maybe it's with others outside these church walls. A neighbor in need, a coworker who's in a tight spot. A chance to show the lavish grace of Christ and the generosity of your God in a tangible way. As we open our hands to others, we become more like him. Let's stand for prayer. I'm actually going to ask that everyone, once again, just raise your hands, okay? We're going to pray this way. I want you to keep them closed tight, though, in a fist. Because that's what we're naturally accustomed to. Hands up, fists up, okay? And we're going to close our eyes to pray. But as we pray, I'm going to invite you to open your hands, just symbolically, as God's Spirit leads you. Keep them clenched tight. Make them real tight. Make like a fist, like you're really angry. And as God's Spirit leads you, as a symbol of your identification with the one who opened his hands widely to you, Lord Jesus, in a dramatic way, you have shown us how to give. In the road to financial freedom, to stewardship, Lord, there is no way around it. It runs through the cross of Jesus Christ. We have been richly blessed. 
and the highest places in the heavens because of what you did for us, Jesus. We praise you now. We worship you. We open our hands to you, Lord. We open our hearts in praise to you. We say, hallelujah, blessed be Jesus Christ, what he's done for us. We open up ourselves now to be influenced by you, by your spirit to do more work in this area of giving. And we thank you that you've invited us to be a part of it. Inflame new love in us, Lord Jesus. Allow your supernatural joy now to begin spilling out in even deeper ways. For this will be our act of worship and grace.